I love that song. Good morning. It's Turling Fox for Jill Bennett. On a soggy Sunday morning, 11 degrees, as Emily just told us, and raining in downtown Vancouver. Oh, by the way, if you're a boat, uh, as in a large boat enthusiast, overnight, uh, the ninth largest cruise ship on the planet rolled underneath the Lions Gate Bridge. It had to do so at the lowest possible tide. This this beast is 20 stories tall. It's called the Norwegian Bliss, and it's now parked at Canada Place, along with a couple of vessels from Holland, America, the Westerdam and the Nordam. 8,000 cruise passengers in our city this morning. Uh, but I know a lot of people will be heading down to the waterfront just to have a look at this enormous vessel, the Norwegian Bliss, which will be here all day and leaving late tonight in th- through the night, again, on that super low tide the only way it can scoot under the Lionsgate Bridge. And I don't imagine there's a lot of clearance when it does. It's time to talk e-cars right now. And, uh, well, this in the wake of an announcement from Victoria that the government of British Columbia is keeping clean transportation affordable by contributing an additional $10 million to the Clean Energy Vehicle Program. And here to talk more about it is Matthew Klippenstein, who is a professional engineer and plug-in electric vehicle enthusiast who's been a GreenCarReports.com correspondent for the last five years. Matthew, Good to talk to you again. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, refresh our memories. This is still quite a new announcement from Victoria. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the additional funding on top of what, Matthew? Sure. So the additional funding is to um, is to top up the fund, the pot of money, which the province uh, began to offer several years ago, offering up to $5,000 for the purchase of a plug-in electric vehicle. Uh, plug-in electric vehicles were popular enough that the uh, the previously allotted funds would not make it to the next budget. So this $10 million, um, equivalent to uh, roughly about uh, 3,000 electric vehicles, depending on uh, what rebate they get, is probably enough to get to the next budget uh, when the government is expected to announce a ZEV mandate, which is a, a quota system, if you will, where car makers will need to sell a certain proportion of their vehicles, an increasing proportion uh, as plug-in electric or zero-emission vehicles uh, to help BC's emissions go down. Interesting. That seems that they're not going to have a great deal of problem in terms of getting support from automotive manufacturers, from Mercedes right on down. They're all heading in that direction. But back to the money for a second, Matthew. In in addition to the $10 just announced a few days ago, that's on top of how much money uh, to get us through to the next budget? budget um so the 10 million is actually the amount which will uh which will hopefully get us to the next budget uh over the years the province has offered i believe about 35 million dollars of rebate so this tops up the uh, the quantity a bit further okay uh, all automakers are um are uh, indeed offering more electric vehicles um california required it now china demands it and so uh, everyone follows the leading markets and uh, so while automakers don't really, uh, you know, they prefer to be allowed to do what they want, um, as long as the legislation is well crafted, then uh, they'll go along with it. Uh, now, uh, is it reasonable to assume that the f- uh, uh, favor, the fondness for electric vehicles, these non-emitting vehicles, uh, both here in British Columbia and elsewhere in Canada, because we're certainly not the only province to have incentives for people to move in this direction, uh, is it safe or reasonable to say that without 
government subsidies, e-car sales would not be at the level they're at this morning. It's absolutely true. So um, what happened a few years ago when the province did uh, run out of money, there was a one-year gap in funding. And uh, while purchases of high-end luxury electric vehicles were unaffected, perhaps these people were committed to buying Teslas or BMWs to begin with, sure. uh, sales of mass-market uh, vehicles, the Chevy Volt, uh, the, the Nissan Leaf, did fall by about half. And so uh, in Ontario, where uh, rebates of up to $14,000 have now been extinguished, uh, yes, there will definitely be a, uh, a consequence to that. Um, largely what this is is the fact that batteries do remain expensive. It will be a number of years, several years yet, before uh, battery electric vehicles, plug-in hybrids are comparable in price to combustion vehicles. And so... Um, uh, I guess you could say this is a long game. We're still in the, the early quarters or the early innings. Sure. And, uh, and things will slow down, but that is the direction that the, the, the industry as a whole is going. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the other reality that Canadians face, Matthew. This, this mm-hmm. e-car stuff is, is much more popular in Europe uh, for one specific reason, if, uh, and many reasons, but for one reason in particular that affects Canadians. In Europe, uh, it, it's, everything's close. Uh, it, it's you, we, in Canada. It, it's not a big thing for a family from Vancouver to jump in the car and blitz over to Calgary to visit the in-laws for a few days and then drive back home. I mean, in Europe, that's four or five countries away. In Canada, no big deal. And it's range that I'm boiling down this down to, Matthew. Uh, the range on most of these electric vehicles is approximately, well, maybe 500 kilometers. Uh, and then there's a charging system that has to kick in. And they don't have the sort of supercharged fast stuff. It takes many hours. How are manufacturers dealing with these problems, especially for long-distance North American types? Right. Uh, You're absolutely correct. In Europe, they have a dense population. Cities tend to be close. And if you go touring, you'll either fly or you'll take the high-speed train. Sure. And so you don't need as much range for your vehicles for your lifestyle. In North America, we have, you know, dense populations on the coast, but nothing in between except for, you know, beautiful natural vistas and so forth. Uh, we ourselves drove in our plug-in hybrids to a drum heller because we have a dinosaur-loving kid. Yeah. And, um, the Royal and Tyrrell so, Museum. What a great place. That, that's right. Absolutely fantastic. They even have a new museum now sort of set up for kids to dig up, uh, you know, fossils and things like that. Cool. Very cool. So um, in, in these cases, uh, manufacturers have been offering these plug-in hybrids, such as the one that we have, uh, where you can use the battery for your daily city driving, but there's a full gasoline combustion system if you do need to make road trips. Right. So that's kind of the intermediate step. Most plug-in hybrids um, receive a $2,500 rebate from the government as opposed to 5000 Some of the ones with the biggest batteries uh, do get the full $5,000. So that's an interim step. It will take, admittedly, many, many years before um, for, for North American driving styles, or at least for your touring, your non-city car lifestyles, where a full battery electric vehicle might be as feasible, as easy and effortless as, uh, as something which still has a gasoline engine. So it's a pretty safe bet to say that the, the popularity in terms of the Canadian preference for going to a lower emission vehicle is the hybrids, where you, you can t- run the battery as long as it's got uh, uh, gusto going, and then it kicks into the, the gas side and you carry on on your journey. Yes, so um, I guess uh, I would expect that to be the trend. At the moment, uh, Tesla's had its uh, very popular new Model 3 out in Canada. Yes. So the the pure battery electric vehicles have... uh, 
have uh, surged ahead a little bit. I think it's about 60-40, the split. Uh, however, um, and for, for families with two cars where one car is just a, a city commuter, mm-hmm. certainly a battery electric vehicle is probably fine there. But uh, it will take a little while for the batteries to be big enough and the range to be big enough and for those cars to be cheap enough to uh, fully replace the touring um, automobile that uh, many of us like to have because, uh, you know, it's it's a big country and we don't have as much rail or or uh, or uh, flights as uh, we'd like. With us this morning to talk about e-cars and Matthew, this whole uh, Elon Musk uh, cult of personality that surrounds the Tesla brand. Uh, we had Jeremy Cato on from the Globe and Mail Automotive Reports on the program yesterday, and he was talking about Mercedes, for example. And Volvo just announced it this weekend too that they're bringing on a new e-car. He said basically the biggest problem with with Tesla is not its cult of personality and its leader; it's an untried vehicle with very limited resources in terms of service capabilities. Uh, and he said, basically, if you had an, uh, an option to choose to spend roughly the same amount of money on a Mercedes new e-car or a Tesla, he personally would choose the Mercedes because of the service infrastructure that's already there and the reputation that goes along with that, unlike Tesla, which in both of those departments has very limited or no numbers. Um, yes, I think that I guess that would be a uh, maybe a tough rational choice. Uh, I'm sure there would be many many uh, people who will uh, will provide uh, Jeremy feedback through Twitter that uh, you know they would definitely choose Teslas. Oh sure. Uh, in a well, sense, the cult of personality the, is powerful. I mean, he has his fans. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very successful example of branding. Yeah. Uh, I suppose the cult of the, the the branding, this cult of personality, the weakness could in fact be that because it is so strong and he gets what he wants, ultimately, uh, Tesla has underinvested in service infrastructure and in some cases has rushed vehicles out without doing the amount of uh, due diligence and prior testing right. that every other automaker does, which which causes, exacerbates these service issues. Um the the whole uh, the, the fact that he is uh, so highly thought of uh, within the, his companies uh, does um, does pose challenges as well as as he's discovered uh, this past week with the SEC where he uh, he is bumping up against limits That's right. and uh, he he will need to respond constructively to those uh, th- those pushbacks. Well, and uh, forty million dollars is a pretty convincing number to say, hey, straighten up and fly right, or you're out. And in fact, speaking of being out, uh, as I understand it, he's going to remain as a chairman. But uh, as uh, CEO, he's out. Uh, I believe it's actually that he remains a CEO but resigns as chairman. Oh, okay, I got it backwards. Uh, and, it's early, uh, but, uh, but all the same, yeah, yes, it's early. Uh, and uh, and again, uh, I think the most substantive actual penalty, perhaps uh, forty million dollars, isn't all that much if you're apparently worth twenty billion. That's true, uh, but. Um, but the, the most substantive thing is that uh, from now on, the SEC requires that anything he tweets be vetted beforehand by an independent committee from the board of directors, mm-hmm. which, mean, which would certainly have saved this uh, $420 uh, sort of speculative tweet that the SEC has, uh, has prosecuted him and settled with him for. Um, I, I am a bit uncomfortable with his, this idea that he was you know, intending to impress his girlfriend, because that seems to be a little bit of a way of throwing her under the, under the electric vehicle. But um, all the same, uh, it will be interesting now that uh, his tweets have some, uh, you know, thankfully, some oversight. Uh, perhaps that should have uh, come about uh, months or even years ago. Uh, it does, unfortunately, the settlement doesn't preclude further prosecution sure. from the SEC, Department of Justice, and the hornet's nest of other uh, legal um, 
proceedings which are advancing against uh, Tesla and and Musk himself. And back to Mercedes, uh, they have in recent months announced that by 2020, they intend to have uh, almost 60 percent of all of their vehicle fleet, all models across their whole brand as uh, e-cars or hybrids. That's a laudable goal from your perspective, I would think, right? Yes. So uh, that is, again, the direction the industry is moving in. Uh, interestingly enough, Vancouver being a mining center, uh, cobalt has become a very hot commodity in the, in the literal sense, uh, as there's a rush for that stuff, which, uh, which is key to uh, many of these electric vehicle batteries. Uh, in one case, I believe Mercedes' plan is to have a tw- um, 60% of its models offered in plug-in or hybrid variants by 2020. The car industry moves in very long, long cycles. Right. And so for them to design only vehicles, say, with batteries, uh, for 2023, they'd have had to start this year, basically. So, uh, But still, this is the direction, and it's, it's, uh, it's good uh, for the environment. We just have to make sure that as, as, as enthusiasts, we don't blind ourselves to the fact that, you know, what works for a Prius driver probably doesn't work for a pickup driver. And uh, we can't realistically expect uh, many people to change their lifestyles on account of our beloved technology. You know, we'd, uh, we don't want to be judgmental or anything. Uh, and uh, keep pushing the automakers to produce these low-emission solutions that fit every person purpose. Yeah, well, what is the most reasonably priced fully electric vehicle on the market right now, Matthew? Uh, right now, I guess the one, the, the Nissan, the, the Smart 4.2 is a, a little bit cheaper, but it's only a two-seater. Right. Uh, the, the Nissan Leaf is the best-selling electric vehicle in the entire world. Uh, you'd never figure it because Tesla swallows up all the oxygen in the room. <laughs> but, uh, That's for sure. It, it starts at about uh, $37,000 Canadian without rebates. And that offers perhaps 250 kilometers of range. And uh, the Chevy Bolt, with a B as in British Columbia, uh, offers more range, almost 400 kilometers, and more than some Teslas, in fact. Uh, but it starts at about $43,000. And so really, the, uh, the key differentiator there is how much money the carmaker is spending on the batteries. For us in North America, going to our earlier conversation, 250 kilometers might not be enough. Yeah. But in Europe, it's fantastic because, again, everyone lives close to uh, other cities or rail or, or uh, other services. So um, we would, I would expect that the sweet spot for electric vehicle range will be somewhat higher in North America, perhaps also in China, very big, uh, very big country, uh, than in Europe, uh, where populations are denser. Uh, GreenCarReports.com, the best website to read your stuff and keep up to speed on what's going on in the electric and uh, crossover type vehicles around us? I, I certainly like to think so, yes. All right. Good to talk to you again, Matthew. We appreciate you getting up early on a Sunday morning. Fascinating stuff. And, of course, uh, the rush is on, isn't it? Ah, good morning, Mom. It's Sterling Fox for Jill Bennett, 733 in the rain. Kyla Lee is with us now. Kyla is a lawyer with the Acumen Law Corporation and with pot legalization less than, well, three weeks away, some police forces are opting out of using the roadside marijuana testing device known as the Drager 5000. And some police forces includes Vancouver Police Force. Uh, Chief Adam Palmer paid a visit here to CKNW and spoke to Linda Steele just a couple of days ago saying, nope, not going to be used in Vancouver. Kyla Lee, good morning. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's good to have you back with us, Kyla. Vancouver police aren't going to use the Draeger 5000. Uh, we understand why Edmonton isn't, because uh, apparently this device doesn't really, isn't uh, reliable at a temperature below plus four Celsius. And every Canadian knows that plus four Celsius is only maybe six months of the year in Edmonton, and the rest of the year is spent well below that temperature. So it's understandable there, but we're not that cold. Why did VPD turn it down? Uh, Vancouver police were also concerned about the reliability. There are some times where we we dip below 4 degrees Celsius. But another concern they expressed was the bulkiness of the device. I mean, this thing is about the size of a a Keurig coffee maker. Okay. And police vehicles are already crammed with all sorts of things that they have to carry around. They've got, um, you know, tactical equipment, breath testing devices. They've got uh, all of their computers and and, um, gear that they need. It's another piece of equipment that they would have to find a place for mm-hmm. and that due to its operational requirements a very specific place for in the police vehicle so i can understand the concerns about its bulkiness okay so that's that's one thing it's just a uh, physically uh, a little more difficult than they need to deal with right now so but it's the as i understand it it's the only device so far approved by the government of canada the same government that of course has legalized pot so in the absence of an alternative what will vancouver and other police forces who have taken a pass on this drager unit what will they do they'll be using something called the standardized field sobriety test This is a mechanism that we've had in the criminal code even prior to cannabis legalization, and it's a series of three uh, psychomotor coordination tests that are done at the roadside to assess somebody's physical ability and their cognitive ability. Okay, so that's the old touch your uh, your, uh, nose with the tippy, or the tip of your nose with your finger, all that stuff. But then that is a a well-known protocol for testing for alcohol impairment. Is it as related? liable for cannabis impairment? It's not. In fact, the the validation studies that have been done about the test have found that it's not reliable as a predictor for impairment by cannabis. But I, I, I don't disagree with the use of them notwithstanding that. And the reason is they're not admissible as evidence in court for anything other than grounds to arrest a person. Okay. And, and there's a component of the test that doesn't factor into the scoring where the officer does assess your responses to the instructions and makes an assessment of your cognitive abilities. So if they're bearing that in mind as they're administering the test and if that's going into how they're making their determination at the end about whether or not to arrest, I think the assessment of cognitive ability is probably something that is is good enough for the purpose for which it would be used. Okay, now this assessment that you just mentioned, would this be done by a police officer who has received drug recognition expert status, having passed a series of tests and taken a course, or will any roadside cop be able to make that assessment? Not any cop and not any uh, individual with DRE training. There's specific training for the SFST uh, tests as well. Uh, Any DRE officer will have the SFST training because the SFST is a component of the DRE uh, ultimately. 
Um, but uh, it's a much shorter training program. I've taken it. It takes about two days, um, and it's uh, it's only three tests, so there's not that much they have to learn. Okay, and by the time, uh, and we're, October 1st is tomorrow, and the 17th is officially the legalization date, what percentage of uh, Canadian police in any department, including Vancouver, will have taken that course and be drug recognition experts? I, we don't really know because they're still working on the training. Their goal was to have had 2,000 officers trained across Canada, and they are far short of that goal. Um, the studies that they've done have suggested that they need one officer per uh, 100,000 people, and that's not looking like they're going to be anywhere close. But it does look like most major police forces are going to have enough DRE officers trained to have a couple on every shift. Okay, so now in terms of, of policing this matter, and, and, you know, this has been going on for a couple of years, and you and I have talked about this on the radio uh, more than a few times over the last couple of years, the notion that police didn't have and weren't, weren't satisfied with the kind of device that would replicate a breathalyzer. You pulled over, you blow into the machine, and 30 seconds later, you're either there or you're gone, <laughs> and, and it's right there, right, for everybody to see. There is there anything coming? down the pipe that might replicate that machine in the in the weeks and months ahead oh there's lots coming down the pipe right now there seems to be a race in the development of quick technology to assess for either cannabis impairment or high concentrations of thc in the body um, to give police that tool and once we have legalization that race is going to speed up because people are going to be able to lawfully dose subjects and test them and get uh, get results better. So I think we're going to see something very soon that's more effective. It's just a matter of, of, of waiting for it. And the VPD and many other police forces are, are sort of indicating that that's what they want to do. They want to see what else comes out in the coming months and years. We're speaking with Kyla Lee, who is a criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Corporation here in Vancouver. Uh, Kyla, uh, uh, you know, uh, you and I have also talked about the likelihood of legal challenges uh, that are just going to be a Niagara Falls in Canadian courts once this thing is legalized. What is likely to be the most challenged aspect of cannabis legalization on, on the morning of October 18th? I think the blood concentration regulation for THC, how much THC you're allowed to have in your body. And the reason why is not only does it disproportionately affect medical users who will have high concentrations of THC in their system sure. and not be impaired by it, but also the science doesn't support uh, impairment by THC based on a concentration in the blood. In fact, I, I was looking at some studies recently that showed that if you eat your cannabis, your blood concentration of THC will be very low, but the impairing effects are greater versus if you smoke it, you get high concentrations, but less impairing effects and for a much shorter period of time. So it isn't as cut and dried as either you're hammered or you're not with booze, is it? It's not. The body treats THC and and all of the other uh, cannabinoids very differently than the body treats alcohol. And so you see a huge difference in the way that your body reacts to it, as well as the way that the uh, that the drug actually shows up in blood concentration. 
Interesting. Kyla, can you, t- you run us through what uh, the protocol is right now for any cop anywhere in British Columbia, let's talk about here in Vancouver, to pull a person over for suspected impairment, uh, impairment of any kind. Impaired is impaired is impaired from the point of view of a police officer going, well, there's erratic driving, there's weird behavior, I'm going to pull this guy over. And, uh, and are there any differences with respect to alcohol impairment and uh, cannabis impairment from that perspective? There are differences as soon as October 17th hits because the government has removed the requirement for breath testing for alcohol that police form a reasonable suspicion there's alcohol in a person's body before doing a breathalyzer test. So if you get pulled over, the police can ask you to do a breathalyzer test with no grounds whatsoever. Okay. But if they want you to do a roadside saliva test or a standardized field sobriety test, they have to have a reasonable suspicion that you have a drug in your body. Now, it'll actually be easier after October 17th for police to come to that conclusion because they can rule out alcohol by doing the breath test on everybody and then go, okay, well, you're still acting weird. It must be a drug. Okay. Now, um, as far as the individual, when he or she gets pulled over by the, uh, but again, you know, you got the red lights and the siren, you off, over you go, and uh, uh, you roll down your window, and what's the problem, officer? Well, we uh, we we think you're impaired, or whatever they say. Uh, at that point, before. Any conversation goes on much beyond you've been pulled over because we noticed you you were driving erratically. At that point, does the person who's been pulled over at least have the opportunity to pull out the cell phone and call her lawyer? No, unfortunately uh, not. The law has put a limitation on your right to counsel. Um, it's suspended during these brief roadside interactions for the purposes of determining sobriety, as long as the roadside interaction is brief. So if the police are delaying the implementation of roadside testing or delaying asking you to participate in roadside testing, then your right to counsel is triggered. Okay. But generally speaking, it's suspended during those those moments. So what is delay? I, I, I know this is, this is going to be a fine point, and you and lots of other lawyers are going to make a few bucks arguing it, but what is a reasonable delay uh, amount of time? What would you suspect it would be? Well, the courts have been very reluctant to put a number on it, but you can find cases where the delay as short as five minutes has offended the charter right to counsel. Hmm. I mean, I wouldn't go about yelling for your lawyer if you've only been delayed for five minutes. Right. Probably will run into more problems in that circumstance. Sure. But if you're getting into 10 or 15 minutes, that's a significant period of time. And that's an amount of time, I think, where where people should be questioning whether they have the right to a lawyer. Okay, and uh, if that amount of time passes and nothing has happened, you're still on hold, uh, then you can you just make the call or do you have to ask permission at the roadside to make the call? I think you can make the call um, and then it becomes an issue for the officer to have to deal with as long as you're polite about it. And Bob from Chilliwack is our first caller this morning. Bob, good morning. Oh, and good morning to you. Um, I get, uh, well, I guess it forms a question. If we already have uh, drug-impaired risk already installed, and it is installed, so why wasn't some of this work being done to find a way to deal with it on the impaired detection side leading up to the point? Why did we wait until something became legal? And secondly, I'm wondering if the government chose this device because it promises to test for more substances. And I found out on the Linda Steele show a couple weeks ago, apparently uh, the way it's sampled, you get a preserved DNA uh, sample that's uh, 
that can be held as a result of it. I wonder if that's the reason why they chose this particular machine, despite its other shortcomings. Interesting. Excellent call, Bob. Great stuff. And Kyla, were you the person on the Linda Steele show that talked about that that Bob heard? Yes, I was. And uh, I don't think that they chose it with some ulterior motive about preserving DNA in mind. Um, the decision to approve this device was made by uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, it wasn't a decision that was made by a police force, so I, I doubt that that was at the forefront or even the back of her mind at the time she approved it. Um, as far as your other question about the roadside testing for impairment and why this is only being done in the uh, advent of legalization. Basically acknowledging a rather poorly thought out game plan. Yeah, and I agree with that. I I mean, to suggest that there's going to be a crisis after legalization has been something that I've just been boggled by because we all know that we're not inventing cannabis as of October 17th. People have been smoking it in this country for hundreds of years. Uh, It's been used for a long time, and people have been using it and getting behind the wheel. It's Mm -hmm. just acknowledging that there's been either a problem that they've not been dealing with or that there's not actually a problem and they don't need this this new tool and these new rules to deal with cannabis-impaired driving. Right. And just uh, before we go to Ed in Vancouver, to follow up on Bob's question about, and this this didn't even occur to me until the conversation you and I had a, a month or two ago, this notion of taking the sample with this Drager saliva collecting device, which ultimately, as Bob says, leaves your DNA in the hands of local law enforcement. Are there, is there language in the law, Kyla, that says once the DNA, once the sample has been taken and tested and all the results uh, acknowledged, the sample is destroyed or is that ambiguous? It's ambiguous. There's no limit uh, in the law on what happens to the sample. It doesn't say you can take it and have your own independent testing. It doesn't let you, uh, let you do anything with it or demand it back. With your blood, if they take a blood or a urine sample, you can demand that back. There's a court application process for it. Right. There's limiting language for your blood test, but there's not for a saliva sample. Mm, and that's kind of spooky, isn't it? You just, it is. Yeah, it's, it's DNA, and uh, you know, it's it, 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 uh, the the information contained therein can last a very, very long time. In whose hands? We wonder. Ed in Vancouver. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. I, I have a couple of things. I and I. I've uh, I was lucky. I was, and I think a lot of people probably would identify with this. I think most people over the age of forty have probably gotten their vehicles when they shouldn't have after having some alcohol. That's a fair point. I'm one, I'm one of them. I've done it a few times, but I haven't in the last thirty years or so. Uh, and I have to tell you, I I'm torn on this one. I want to make sure that the roads are safe. Mm-hmm. So a simple thing like. If there's any odor of marijuana in the vehicle, I think that should be an automatic roadside suspension. I think I also think that until the testing is is sufficient where you can't challenge it the way that it will be challenged if they move forward with the current apparatus, then you don't do it. But I, I also think that as a lawyer, your job is to make sure that you, you help the person get off the charges or that are being put against them. But some days do you wonder, maybe this guy is guilty or this woman is guilty and I'm doing something maybe I shouldn't be doing. I know it's kind of a bizarre question, but I, I, you know, it's like innocent until proven guilty, but in the back of your mind, you know, and I also think it'd be great to have a a camera 
a body camera on every cop who's going to be doing this testing as secondary evidence. All right, Ed, you've raised a few points there, and all good ones. I thank you for that. So, Kyla, let's go through those points uh, one at a time. Okay, well, body cameras, I completely agree with you. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, there have been lots of studies done that have shown that um, body cameras actually make policing safer. People behave differently when interacting with the police when they know they're being recorded. Mm -hmm. And police also behave differently when they know they're being recorded. So body cameras generally are better for everyone, and I fully support the use of them. Um, Even Cash Heed, the former uh, West Vancouver uh, chief of police, uh, is also in support of them. So, um, you know, he's a huge advocate for those. And what about the smell? Any smell at all? If you whiff, uh, catch a whiff of pot in a vehicle, that, Bob says, alone, all by itself, should be uh, grounds for an immediate suspension. I don't agree with that. And the reason is there's a huge distinction between the smell of smoked cannabis uh, which might indicate, you know, that somebody's recently been smoking it, and the smell of fresh cannabis. We do have rules in this province around how much and when you can transport cannabis in your vehicle, but because you're entitled to have it in your car, there may be the smell in your car, and it may have nothing to do with anything that's in your body. Ah. Um, and without the ability to have the smell of cannabis in your car, people are going to have a lot of difficulty lawfully purchasing their cannabis and then taking it home. Okay. Uh, And uh, as far as and back to the earlier point about a poorly thought out game plan, uh, I I don't know that there are many Canadians that uh, on the uh, cusp of this all coming down are are looking at at the what's about to happen, including all the lawsuits and go, geez, why didn't they think of this? Why didn't they think of that? It's you know, they were in such a rush to do it. They just they got it done before. Well, filling in all the, the blanks. Yes, absolutely. It's it's going to be very interesting days after October 17th, and I look forward to them. I'll bet you do. Kyla Lee, thank you for this this morning. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me again. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Jill Bennett. Nice to be with you on this soggy Sunday morning. 12 degrees in the rain in downtown Vancouver. It's a quarter after eight, and first order of business is to congratulate Doug in Burnaby, who just picked himself up a pack, a four-pack of BC Lions tickets to the October 19th game against Edmonton down there at BC Place. Way to go, Doug, and thanks for all your calls this morning. We turn our attention now to Ottawa, where we're joined on the line by Globe and Mail parliamentary correspondent Bill Curry to talk about a lot of things, NAFTA front and center, but also the leader's courtesy issue that may or may not be extended to Jugmeet Singh in Burnaby. Bill Curry, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Bill. Uh, let's talk. We'll talk NAFTA in a few seconds because, of course, the deadline looms large. But there's this leader's courtesy. It's it's a it's not a rule. It, it's a it's a sort of a, a parliamentary agreement that when a leader of a party runs in a particular riding in a by-election, the other parties uh, refuse or or extend the courtesy of not running a candidate against that leader, pretty much guaranteeing that person a seat in the House of Commons so they can get on with leading their party. The Green Party, the one-person Green Party, has said, oh, we're good with that. Uh, the Liberals, the government, is still, well, dithering on the matter. What, what do you hear about Jagmeet Singh being opposed or not in Burnaby South? Well, the Liberals haven't announced what they're going to do yet, but there's certainly rumours that they might uh, uh, go along with uh, Elizabeth May and extend that courtesy. But then that fuels all kinds of speculation about 
what the Liberals actually want. Do they think that uh, it's going to be better for them to have uh, Jagmeet Singh in uh, as NDP leader heading into the next election, uh, or uh, are they concerned that perhaps the NDP will uh, will turf him? So the issue is timing, because we're about an hour, or sorry, an hour, a year away from the next federal election. Right, yeah. It's the government that controls the timing of by-elections. So uh, there's, you know, people are speculating, are the Liberals deliberately dragging this thing out so that if uh, you get to a situation too close to the election, if, uh, if Mr. Singh were to lose, uh, is it too tight of a timeline for the NDP to pick another leader? So there's all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories about uh, behind-the-scenes plotting going around. It's, it's a lot more than just a simple by-election this time around. Yeah, no question. And, of course, the prime minister is decidedly to the left of his own party, uh, which puts him pretty much into NDP territory on a lot of issues. So is it to his advantage, is it to the Liberals' advantage to have Singh in the House, as you point out, uh, Bill, or uh, would they be better off? with a, a fractured, a more fractured NDP. This is not a well-organized party. They're not expected to do well in Quebec next year at all. And Mr. Singh hasn't exactly taken the country by storm. So as uh, the sort of uh, a non-in-house leader right now, is it to the government's advantage to keep him in the, in the foyer rather than give him a, a seat opposite the prime minister? Um. Well, that's the, that's the calculation they're going to have to make. You yeah. know, if, if Mr. Singh is in the House of Commons, does his popularity start to go up with a little bit more attention? I mean, even then, when you're the third party in opposition, it's hard to, to squeeze into the, uh, you know, as a reporter, you often see the clips, uh, the news. You know, if they're lucky, Andrew Shearer and the Conservatives will get into the, the clip, but often the critical voice comes from whatever interest group is uh, upset about whatever the issue of the day is. So right. it's hard for the main opposition party to get us into a story. It's even harder for the second opposition party to get into a story. So even being in Ottawa on a day-to-day basis and asking questions, it's not really a guarantee that you're going to get a whole lot more attention that the average uh, consumer of news is going to see. So... Uh, so that's, that's the issue. I mean, certainly if you talk to any conservative, they will always tell you they need a strong NDP to, uh, to have a good chance of winning elections. So right. there's, there's uh, their perspective as well. Uh, the uh, Liberals don't want to have a strong NDP. Uh, it's hard to say if whether him being in the House or not is going to make it. And there's no pressure to get anything done tomorrow or anything. Oh, and speaking of tomorrow, by the way, and pressure, there's a NAFTA deadline apparently of today that the government of Canada isn't the least bit interested in honoring because tomorrow is the provincial election in Quebec, and that, the outcome of that tomorrow bill, is going to determine what Canada's position on some matters, especially dairy, is in the NAFTA chats with the states. So we got to wait for the government, at least Trudeau wants, uh, the Quebec election to run through its course tomorrow and then move on the NAFTA file, getting a lot of heat from the Americans today to get it done today. Yeah, it's seeming to be a pretty newsy Sunday and, uh, and Monday. Um, it's, uh, you know, we saw Christopher Freeland was supposed to be giving a speech to the UN this weekend. She canceled that. Right. It's all hands on deck. They seem to be no- negotiating over the phone from, uh, and, uh, secure video link. Uh, it seems like Ottawa and, uh, sorry, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland are going to hunker down in Ottawa and negotiating it, uh, that way with their counterparts in Washington as opposed to face to face meetings. It's it definitely, I mean, we've seen so many deadlines come and go. Sure. But, I think the fact that 
the uh, U.S. and Mexico were prepared to release the text probably on Friday, and then it sounds like Justin Trudeau intervened with the Mexicans, asking them to just give them a little bit more time. I think it seems like Canada's running out of delay tactics here. Uh, I mean, it certainly has been widely speculated that Canada was deliberately ragging the puck on this just to get through the Quebec election oh, yeah. on Monday because of uh, all the fallout that come from that. Well, so whether they announce a deal in principle today or tomorrow, um, you know, in my experience, we've, we've recently had some trade deals. Uh, the, the the one with uh, the European Union. The first announcements tend not to have a whole lot of detail in them. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some kind of broadly worded. We've got an agreement in principle. You know, that could come even before the Quebec results are in, because uh, I think even then you're, you're still not going to really know. Uh, what to do with that, uh, you know, in terms of the Quebec election. But, it, I mean, from our reporting over the weekend, the Globe's reporting has been, if there's a deal that's starting, starting to look like the U.S. is going to give on Chapter 19, this independent dispute resolution, right. and there's disagreements between the two parties, and in exchange, Canada's going to give up even more uh, dairy quota than they had planned. So that's uh, for people following this, you'll often hear, you know, are, are, we, are you in favor of supply management of the dairy sector or against? In reality of these trade deals, it's not black and white. It's not yes or no. It's quotas and percentages. And, uh, you know, the dairy sector said we already gave up a bit on the European deal. We gave a bit more in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Canada is still a part of, even though the U.S. is back down. Right. And it sounds like this deal, if uh, the, the rumors are true, it goes a little bit more quota than what Canada was prepared to give up in the TPP talks. So that seems to be where things are heading. Okay, so it is likely that we're going to give some on the dairy file. Uh, Bill, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I would, you're Ottawa, you're in Ottawa, and of course right across the yeah. river from you is, is Gatineau in the province of Quebec, and they're all set to go to the polls tomorrow. So from uh, tell us folks out here in B.C. what what uh, what you think uh, is the likely outcome. Mr. Cuillard, the current Premier of Quebec, a, a federalist guy with a, a fairly efficient management style, running a sort of quietly efficient government appears to be in trouble. So who's going to knock him off, if anybody? <laughs> well, the, uh, it would be quite historic if this happens, if the polls hold true. It's the Coalition Avenir Quebec, the CAQ. Uh, they are kind of a sort of a conservative party uh, to the right of the Liberals, but the, the Quebec Liberals have always been fairly conservative too. So. Yes. Uh, it's kind of an interesting mix. It's a bit of, if that holds, it's a real realignment of what we've seen for the last 30 years in Quebec, where the lines had always been federalist, sovereignist, and now it might be more, uh, you know, what you see in other uh, other provinces. It's more of a conservative versus centrist, and then there are further left parties in Quebec as well. So we'll see how that shakes down. It's a tough one because the horse races are almost uh, neck and neck now. It's like 31, 30 or so for the CAQ over the Liberals. But the, the analysts who kind of break down the numbers in terms of pockets of strength say that there's still a chance for a CAQ majority, which is what they thought going in. They kind of lost momentum during the campaign, and now it'll be tight again. But, you know, we've seen, we've seen plenty of examples lately why when, when polls are close, you, you really shouldn't be making predictions. Okay. Can happen. Well, there's fair ball. But I'm, I'm wondering, in, in our last minute here, Bill, I'm wondering about yeah. the, the separatist movement, the sovereignist party, the Parti Québécois, Pauline Marois, was their last leader and as premier was a total disaster. And, and it, I, you're not hearing much about them in this election campaign at all. Where are the separatists in the game? 
Uh, they they were started very low, but uh, Jean-François Lisée is the, the leader of the PQ, and he's uh, everybody seems to think he had a pretty strong campaign. So it's kind of like the leader is more popular than the party in one of those situations. Uh-huh. So, um, but he also has uh, uh, there's now a, a really far left uh, separatist party as well. So there's kind of competition for for that vote there. But I, they're certainly not in contention this time around. Uh, even though they had backed down, they they were promising. No referendum in the first mandate, but uh, that wasn't enough to get people to reconsider uh, the PQ this time around, it looks like. Interesting stuff. Well, of course, it's only 24 hours away, and you'll be, uh, you and your, your whole gang in Ottawa will be gathered around the results and uh, p- pounding out stories left, right, and center. Bill Curry, thanks for getting up early to do this with us today. We appreciate it. Good to talk to you again.